I'm pretty happy to be here too. All right, let's rewind. 30 seconds. Have the claims of Christianity ever seemed unbelievable to you? Have you ever had the cloud of uncertainty and skepticism hang over you, leading you to doubt your faith? Are you currently walking through the desert of cynicism and skepticism? In John 20, verses 24 through 31, we see that Jesus isn't intimidated by our questions and doubts. He's willing to meet us right in the midst of them and walk us through the desert of doubt to a deeper and more robust faith. Are you willing to invite Jesus into your doubts to help guide you? We're going to be in John 20, verses 24 through 31. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The title of our sermon is Doubt, Seeking God in the Midst of Uncertainty. And so we're going to look at three things in this passage. First, doubt. Be honest in verses 24 through 25. The second, welcome the God who seeks out those that doubt in verses 26 through 28. And then the last one, third, blessed, life found in Jesus, verses 29 through 31. So first, doubt, be honest. We pick up in uh, chapter 20 of John, and, and to kind of give a little context as we jump into it in the middle of the chapter, Jesus has just died on the cross. His disciples have scattered, thinking that this movement is gone, thinking that what they've given their lives to the last three years is over, and the tomb that they go to see Jesus at, the, the rock is rolled away, and they see that it's empty. Mary's the first one there, and then we read that Peter and John go there. Apparently, John's faster than Peter and gets there first. And they go in, they see that the tomb is empty, and they, they walk out believing that something's happened. And we see that Jesus then, the, the first person that Jesus resurrects to and appears to is Mary. And Mary goes and she tells the disciples, and later that same evening, Jesus comes and he appears to the disciples, walks and shows himself to them, and right, I'm sure their jaws drop in unbelief and, and surprise and shock, but somehow Thomas isn't with them. For whatever reason, talk about bad timing, right? Whatever he's doing, he's not there. And they come and they, you know, I imagine the excitement and the enthusiasm they must have. Thomas, dude, you have no idea what you just missed. Christ came. He resurrected. He's alive. And we, you know, now know why Thomas got his famous nickname, the doubter, because he, he says, listen, you believed him because he saw him? 
like, how gullible are you? I wouldn't believe him if I saw him. I need to touch him. I need to place my hands on the nails and, and, and the holes, and I need to place my hand on his side. I need physical verification that this really happened. And it's really interesting that we see this theme, this kind of doubt and skepticism in the book of John, because one of the biggest themes of the book of John that courses through it is faith. I mean, it's literally the theme of the gospel, as we see later in, uh, in, in this chapter and in this, these verses, is that John says, I've written this, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in, in his name. And so it's, it's in the midst of this book, all about faith, that we encounter Thomas. We encounter this skepticism, this doubt. But we learn that there's hope, right? That there's a path forward, that there's guidance through our doubt. So what exactly is doubt? Well, Gary Habermas says that there are at least half a dozen Greek words that describe the general condition that we have called doubt. Such words regularly indicate a state of vacillation or questioning, even of anxiety, despair, or unbelief. The Latin word for doubt, dubidere, comes from an Aryan root meaning to. To believe or have faith is to be in one mind with regard to accepting something as true. To disbelieve is to be in one mind about rejecting it. To doubt is to waver between the two. To believe and doubt at once. And so it is to be in two minds. Doubting is to be of two minds. James talks about it. As, he says, when you, if you lack wisdom, ask in faith. But if you doubt, you're like the winds. You're like the sea that just goes back and forth. It's slosh all the time that you're constantly being thrown back and forth. And doubting is, it's different than critically thinking about your faith, right? It's important. Every Christian, all of us should think critically and deeply about our faith, but doubting is different, right? You might think critically about your faith and doubt, but the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. Doubt is a condition of the heart and soul, right? It often masquerades as more intellectual than it actually is. But doubt is when our perception of the world doesn't match up with what we believe to be true, Right? It's when our perception of the world doesn't match what we believe to be true, and it causes us to be spiritual dizzy, spiritually dizzy or disoriented, to have spiritual vertigo. Have you ever been dizzy or had vertigo before? Right? Every once in a while when I'm swimming and I'm doing my backstroke, all of a sudden I like look at the ceiling, and all of a sudden I start hitting the side of the lane. I see with my kids when they, for whatever reason, they love to spin around. And so, you know, go around and around in circles, and all of a sudden you place them down, and they can't, they don't know what way is left or right. They end up knocking into stuff. And this is what it's like to go through doubt. It's this spiritual vertigo where we're dizzy and we're kind of spinning, not really sure where to put our foot at, where to go. We see this in Matthew 14 with Peter. So in this chapter, Jesus is crossing the sea, and it's the middle of the night, and the disciples are in this, you know, pretty firm storm, and they see this person walking along, and they kind of get scared because they think it's a ghost, and they're not really sure what's going on, and Peter, in this really act, uh, huge act of faith, he says, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come, and I will walk on the water. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement of faith right there, and Jesus commands Peter to step out. And so Peter steps out, starts walking on water, but then he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he starts looking at the wind, the storms, the waves around him, and all of a sudden this spiritual vertigo, this dizziness starts to happen, and he begins to sink. 
right? And Jesus reaches out, pulls him up, and says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And in that moment, nothing, nothing changed intellectually for Peter, right? It's not like in, in this moment, Peter had this big intellectual question about, you know, what was going on. But no, he was overwhelmed by the experience that he was having. He was overwhelmed by the sea and the winds and the waves. And because of that, it, it took his focus off of Christ and it caused him to be in this spiritual vertigo. C.S. Lewis uh, talks about an illustration, too. He says, there was a girl that um, was asked out by this, you know, hunk of a guy, and uh, she was going to go out with him. She was really preparing to go out, but she had these 20 friends, all these really phenomenal girlfriends that she trusted, have been through life with her, and they all told her, be careful. When you go out with this guy, he's going to seem really smart, really charming. He's going to sweep you off of your feet, but the moment that you fall in love with him, he's going to dump you flat. Right? Because this is what he does. And so they all told her that. But she goes on the date. And, you know, even though she has no reason to doubt or mistrust any of her girlfriends, as she's sitting next to this guy and he starts talking to her, she starts doubting. Well, listen, maybe I'm the one. They don't know. He might really fall for me. He really might love me. And nothing changed for her intellectually, but, but this experience overwhelmed her mind and her heart to what she knew is true. And so it started spinning her. And this is, what, this is what doubt does for the believer. We have this when we ask questions like, how can suffering evil exist? Right? We might know intellectually that, well, God is wiser than I am. He's very intelligent. He probably has a reason that maybe I don't fully understand. But then suffering happens to us. And all of a sudden, this spiritual vertigo happens. And how could God really be good and let this happen to me? Nothing's changed necessarily intellectually for us. But all of a sudden, we've had this experience, and it puts us spinning. What about how can, how can smart, intelligent, kind people believe differently than I do? I right? believe that Christianity is the truth, but we have this encounter of people that are different than us. And all of a sudden, we start, start spinning. We go into the season of doubt. Right? Doubts happen when experience makes what our mind knows unreal to our hearts. Now, if you're in that spot or you've been in that spot, I want to encourage you that you're not alone in your doubts. Right? You're, you're not alone in your doubts. Thomas doubted, and let's think about what Thomas went through. Thomas spent three years with Jesus. Think of all the things that he saw, all the experiences that he had. And he doubted. We see the Bible is full of people that were mature and that loved the Lord and still had these seasons or periods of doubt. Abraham and Sarah, right? God comes to them in their old age and tells them they're going to have a child, and they doubted. They laughed at God. And so he named their child Laughter. Zachariah doubted God's ability to give him a child in his old age. John the Baptist, whom Jesus says no one greater has been born of woman, while John is sitting in a prison cell waiting ultimately for his death, he sends messengers to Jesus, are you, are you really the Messiah? Right? This is one that had already made this huge faith proclamation of, behold the Lamb of God of whom he takes, the sin of, uh, takes away the sin of the world. Right? So we know John the Baptist already has this extraordinary faith, but in the midst of this experience of being in prison, he still, he still has a doubt. And Jesus reassures him. Peter, while walking in water, we see the disciples, even in the midst of Jesus' crucifixion, we see that all the disciples doubt. They, they run away. 
Doubting is not a sign of immaturity, and nor is doubting a sign of maturity. Doubt is not a virtue that we should celebrate. Doubt is a reality. Doubt is a reality that many of us will encounter personally or with those that we love. But hear this, doubt isn't neutral, right? We are aiming our doubt one way or the other. We're either aiming our doubt towards faith and inviting Christ into it, or we're aiming our doubt towards unbelief, trying to hold him at bay. Aim your doubts towards God. So how do we move forward, right? We know we need to aim our doubts towards God, but one of the first things I think that's really important in the midst of our doubt is that we need to be honest, right? We need to be honest about our doubts. Honesty and openness are the path towards health, not secrecy and repression, right? If you're in the midst of doubts, it's very unhelpful to say, stop doubting, just believe. In fact, that will lead to a more toxic expression given time. And so the first place that you need to start in the midst of your doubts is you need to be honest about them with yourself. You need to acknowledge where you're at because only through acknowledging where you're at can you ever hope to move forward. And in your acknowledgement to yourself, be specific, right? What exactly is it that you're doubting? Is it a question? Is it an experience? And you hear this, not all doubt is sin, right? There are moments and seasons that doubt come that is not, that is not sinful. But oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves and we ask, what is causing my doubt? What is the motivation for my doubt? and we peel back that layer, we begin to doubt our doubts and unpack the motivation, we see that often the motivation is to get out of doing what God has called us to do, or we're afraid of what God will call us to do. Is maybe God calling you to end a relationship or maybe to stay in one? Is maybe God calling you to a standard of holiness that you're afraid of? Oftentimes, we see the motivation for doubt to get outside or we're afraid of what God is calling us to do. And we see exactly this in Genesis 3. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see that the serpent comes, the enemy comes, and the first thing that he does is that he gets humanity, he gets God's creation to doubt his goodness. Right? He comes and he speaks to Adam and Eve, and he says, did God really say this? Is, does he really have your best interest in mind? I mean, if he had your best interest in mind, why would he withhold this from you? Doesn't he want you to be happy? And so you see that their doubt begins with this seed from the enemy that says, ah, does God really care for me? Does he really love me? Does he really want my best? Because if he does, then why would he tell me not to do this? Or why would he withhold this from me? And let me, if, if that, if we peel back and we're honest and we're self-aware and we begin to realize that there's no answer that's going to satisfy that doubt. Right? Because the intellectualism is a mask that we're putting up to hide what really is driving the doubt. And it's this rebellion and pushing back and doubt of God's goodness. And what we desperately need is not an apologetic answer, but an experience of God's goodness in your life. You need to open yourself and allow him to come and meet with you, to be reminded of his care and his kindness and his goodness to you. So we need to be honest with ourselves. What is our doubt? What's causing it? Are we using our doubt as a masquerade to, to run away from God because we doubt his goodness? The second thing is we need to be honest with others. 
God made us to be in community. You were never intended to go through your struggles alone. Right? Thomas, at least, he's honest, you know? He says, hey, listen, I doubt, and he voices it, you know, not only to himself, but to his community. And it's amazing that, you know, he's still there, right? It's not like they said, well, sorry, Thomas, you doubted, out. <laughs> I mean, right, we see eight days later, Thomas still hasn't changed his perspective, but he's still in the community. They still welcome him. They still care for him. He's, he's with them. We need to, to open, be open with others and acknowledge where we're at with them. Because, listen, they might not have all the answers, when we, when we open ourselves and are, we're honest and truthful with other people, they might not have all the answers that we're craving, but there is something powerful and healing about being heard, about being known, about having someone next to you that acknowledges where you're at and says, I'm with this. I'm, I'm in this with you. I'm not going anywhere. And so we, we need to acknowledge where we're at with other people and invite them into our doubt and into our struggle. And the next thing is that we need to be honest with God. Right? It can feel strange talking to God while doubting his existence. But we have, we have hundreds of sense experiences all the time telling us to doubt God, to doubt his existence and his goodness, his reality, from the media we consume to the music we listen to, the friends we hang around. We have so many sense experiences around us telling us, encouraging us to doubt God. It's only fair, it's only right that we allow an equal playing field and open ourselves up to experience with God for him to meet with us. And so even in the midst of your doubt, it might be praying something like this, God, I'm not sure right now. I don't know if you're there, but if you are, help me. I'm doubting, I'm struggling. Maybe it's even, I believe, help my unbelief. But opening yourself up and allowing God to meet with you Allowing yourself to experience his reality and being honest with him about where you are. There's power in forward movement when we are honest with ourselves, with others, and with God. It's the first step we take forward to moving through our doubt. Second thing that we see is welcome the God who seeks out those that doubt. Right, we, we see here that eight days have passed and Thomas is still with the disciples. And what happens? Jesus intentionally seeks him out. Right? I mean, Jesus has already met with all the other disciples. And so he appears, why? To pursue Thomas, specifically for him. Now, I, I think it's important to understand that, well, one, Jesus knew about Thomas' doubts, but also it took eight days. Right? It wasn't like all of a sudden he doubted and then the next morning Jesus says, hey, here I am. I'm here to take away your doubts. Sometimes there's a season and there's a, a, a time frame of doubt that we don't exactly understand why. And we see it here is that why eight days? We don't really know, but we trust that right? Jesus had a purpose in it. And it wasn't that he didn't love Thomas or that he didn't care for Thomas. So he wasn't pursuing Thomas. And so sometimes our seasons of doubt might last longer than what we think they should or what we hope for. But I want you to know that it's not because Christ isn't pursuing you, and it's not because he doesn't care for you. I remember in college for me, I went through a season of really deep doubt. I was a philosophy major, and I was studying through atheism and the problem of evil, and it was the first time I had encountered people that were really smart that differed from me, right? And as I was struggling, and there are really good questions that Christianity offers to the objections 
that those problems have. But I realized that what I was longing for, it wasn't a propositional answer, right? It wasn't something that was going to wrap up all these arguments in a nice, clean bow and finally put the end to all of my questions because there's not such a thing. There's always more questions. But as I began to seek the Lord, I realized that he was seeking me and that as I met with him and I encountered him, I realized that the hunger underneath my pursuit of truth wasn't to encounter the person of truth. It was to encounter Christ. And so we can be encouraged that even in our doubt, even in us questioning that he is seeking after us and that often the hunger that is driving our doubt is, is to encounter truth and not just a proposition or an apologetic answer, but a person. We see this is the heart of Jesus, is that he pursues those that are far away from him. Matthew 18, 12 says, What do you think if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? And Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. In the midst of your doubt, it might not feel like it, but know that Christ is pursuing you. Know that he loves and that he cares for you. Second thing that I think that we see here in this welcome that Jesus offers and this pursuit that he has is that he engages with Thomas and he engages his reason, right? Jesus encounters him and he engages Thomas's reason. He says, feel, look, look at the evidence. Examine the evidence that I'm providing you and see if it's convincing or not, right? Faith is not opposed to reason, Faith is not holding on to something despite the evidence. Faith is holding on to something despite the appearance. Right? It's not holding on to something despite the, the evidence. It's holding on to something despite the appearance. Right? Jesus quells Thomas's doubts not by rebuking him and telling him, well, just believe. Why did you doubt? Right? He, he invites him into this opportunity to examine the evidence. And we see this throughout the scripture, right? In Luke 24, when Jesus appears, and they're shocked. He says, you doubt me? Give me fish, right? He presents himself and says, examine the evidence. And so, no, if you're here and you're questioning the claims of Christianity, if you're doubting that God's not afraid of questioning, he's not afraid of evidence, and there's a lot of really important questions out there in Christianity, but may I invite you just to consider, one, the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? If, if that's true, then everything changes. If that's false, then you saved yourself a lot of time. And so examine the reality of Jesus' death and his, his resurrection. Don't reject Christianity because you're afraid of maybe some of the implications or you're afraid of what God might call you to do. Start and ask, is this true? And if it's true, then allow him to change you and allow him to move through you. And so know that, that faith is not opposed to reason, and there's several phenomenal books if you're open to reading, you know, The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. All these are phenomenal places to start and to begin reading and asking hard and difficult questions. We see that also that Jesus has mercy towards those that doubt. Jesus wasn't surprised by Thomas's doubt. He wasn't shocked. He knew his doubt. And he showed Thomas mercy. He didn't ignore him. He didn't belittle him. He didn't kick him out. But he helped Thomas move through his doubts 
to united in a powerful faith. And listen, you'll never make it through your doubts if you believe that God is waiting to condemn you and he's waiting to kick you out. You have to believe that, that God has grace for you, that he's patient with you, desiring that you would come. And we can know that he has grace for us because of the cross. Jesus faced the penalty and the, the justice that we deserve. He took the sin that you and I have committed that we would know that though he was forsaken, we would never be forsaken. And so it doesn't matter if you are far from God and that your doubts have led you to a place to think that you can never come back. Know that he, he's not forsaking you, that he, he's not alienating you, that you are still welcome. Philip Yancey says that God appears far less threatened by doubt than does his church. Know that God is not threatened by your doubt, that he has mercy and grace waiting for you. The last point, blessed, life found through faith in Jesus. We see the, the greatest doubter in Thomas also leads to the greatest cry of faith that we have in any of the Gospels. Thomas says after he has been moved by Christ from this place of doubt to this place of, of faith, and he says, my Lord and my God, Thomas's doubt turned into deep faith, and doubt can lead to a robust, a, a robust faith if it's, it's aimed towards Jesus. The Bible has a, a really balanced view on doubt. It, it says that neither is it, doubt's not a virtue. It's not something that we're intended to celebrate. It's not something that we vilify. It's a reality, but it has so much power if it's aimed directly because usually behind doubt, there's a, a serious question that if you've wrestled with it long enough, it's going to lead you to a deeper understanding of God's character and of the gospel. And it's also going to prepare you to encounter and to relate to people that don't share your faith. It's going gonna, it's gonna to humble you, and it's also going to give you confidence. But the Bible also talks about the danger of doubt, right? That if you, if you have doubt as a virtue and it consumes you, that will lead you into the pit of despair, that leads you into this uncertainty, this wavering that can actually destroy your faith and lead to instability. So are we going to allow God to meet us and to deepen our faith through our doubt? Next thing is we see that there's a blessing that comes through our faith. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Right, this state of blessedness, it can mean happy, but it also means God's favor is resting upon them. And know that there is life found through faith in Christ, and it's worth fighting for. Often in, when I've walked through friends that are struggling with doubt, I, we, rem, we remind each other that faith in Christ is worth fighting for, that the promise that he has given to us, it's worth fighting through doubt for. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is life found in faith through Christ. There's forgiveness of sin. There is eternal life. There is a connection to the family of God and adoption. There is so much found through him. And it's worth fighting for. It's worth hanging on to and pushing through. The last thing is that I, we have a, a model to follow. So one of our core desires here at local church is that we would be a place where there is tolerance and community. 
We've got multiple core desires, but this is one of our core desires, is that we would be a place of tolerance and community. And what that means is that we don't have to agree on everything with someone else to show them love and respect. We don't need to accept their belief system as true to be their friend. And we want to bring honest questions and honest answers where we have them, and that we know this happens best in the context of genuine community. How is it that we can be a people of tolerance and community? It's by allowing the gospel to shape us. It's by walking through our own doubts with intentionality and patience. It's through inviting God into our doubts to guide us. And when you've done this throughout your life, it humbles you. You can't help but be humbled when you've seen your own doubts and you've seen God's mercy towards you. It humbles you so that you can no longer look on others that disagree with you with pride or haughtiness. It humbles you. It gives you mercy towards other people, but yet it also brings confidence, right? When you are patient and you examine your doubts and you do the due diligence to think critically about them, it, it brings a confidence about the reality and the truths of Christ. And so this allows us to engage with people that are going through doubts and are different with us. It allows us to listen to them, to respect them, to care for them, but it also allows us not to not to be folded or to bend to their doubts, not to allow their doubts to become supreme and overwhelm us. There's an example, I think, of what this looks like, and for me, I think a pattern of what we hope we would do here at Local. In John 1, Jesus has just encountered Philip, and he's told Philip to come follow him. And um, Philip goes, and he, uh, he finds uh, Nathaniel. And he tells Nathaniel, he says, hey, Nathaniel, I found, um, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Right? What's really interesting is that at first you think like there's uh, kind of this prejudice that Nathaniel has against kind of this back country of Nazareth. But it's not really that. You see, Nathaniel's doubting. Nathaniel's asking, wait a second, you say that you found the one named the Messiah, but I thought that he was supposed to come from Bethlehem, right? Doesn't the Bible, doesn't scripture talk about that he's supposed to come from Bethlehem? And so Nathaniel's pushing back against Philip, and he's saying, wait a second, how can this be true? How can this be real? This isn't what it says. And notice, Philip doesn't have the answer, right? He doesn't say, he doesn't do two things. One, he doesn't have the answer, um, and he's not able to just quickly dismiss it, but he also doesn't bend. He also doesn't say, you know what, you're right, Nathaniel, we shouldn't really follow this guy. Apparently, I was just wrong. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't fold underneath his doubt either. What does he do? He says, why don't we come see? He invites him to find out together. He invites him to come and to experience Christ. And he says, let's go find out together. And I think this is the model for us as we, as we move forward as a community. Both with our doubts, we invite people in, but as we're encountering people that are different than us is that we approach them with humble confidence, inviting them to express their doubts, to express where they're at, but yet knowing that Jesus does the answers. Even though if we don't have the answer right then, let's go figure out together. We invite them into that. And so that should be our model, and I pray that that would be very applicable to you if you have friends, family, or you yourself are going through doubt. Open yourself up to community. Invite people in. And then be a person that invites others in to express their doubt and lead them to Jesus that we would figure out together. Pray with me. Father, we, we need you and we thank you that you have mercy towards us even in the midst of our uncertainty. 
Thank you that you paid our debt, that you were alienated from the Father, that we might know that no matter what we go through, that we are never alienated from you. And so I pray for those that are in the midst of doubt, that you would, you would help guide them, that you would meet them, that you would answer their objections with evidence, but you would also help them to experience your goodness. We need you, and we love you. In this name we pray, Christ. Amen.